Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 15th, the How Soon is Too Soon to Email the Teacher edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, Seven, Sam, Five, and Wally, Three. And I'm Dan Coyce, also an editor at Slate and the dad of Harper, who's nine, and Lyra, who's 11. Have you emailed their teachers yet? Uh, yeah, yep, sure have. <laughs> okay. On today's show, we'll talk to Belle Boggs about her new book, The Art of Waiting, on fertility, medicine, and motherhood. And then we'll be joined by everyone's favorite teacher, Matt Dix, to answer ours and your back-to-school questions, uh, everything you want to ask your own kids' teachers but are afraid of asking because you don't want to look like that parent. Except Dan. I guess you don't mind looking like that that parent. I'm that parent, man. (laughs) Plus triumphs and fails, a listener call about when to end a marriage, and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, Slate's deputy editor, John Swansburg, who really hasn't joined us for a long time. It's been very lax. Yes. He'll return triumphant or in failure. (laughs) Uh, All right, listeners, a big announcement. Previously, uh, as you may well know, our show went live on Thursday mornings. Uh, Starting now, our show will go live on Thursday evenings. Uh, Think of us as the NBC must-see TV lineup of 1995, except that Allison is Friends and I am Suddenly Susan, starring Brooke Shields. Uh, Also, there's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we are offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week. And a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash fighting plus. And last thing, we got a lot of responses to our call-in show uh, from last episode on Facebook and over email, uh, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. The number one response seems to be that I am bad at birthdays. I'm a birthday Grinch. Um, Parents of twins, grandparents of twins. Adult twins wrote in to tell me that only a monster would make twins share a birthday present at their birthday party. It was a brutal beatdown uh, on social media and in my email inbox. So, okay, 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 okay. Don't do that. Uh, the, a really good solution was actually suggested by many listeners. Um, Rachel in Connecticut put it. My oldest daughter has been in school with a boy and girl set of twins for a few years now. Their parents handle the birthday party very skillfully. They invite you to either Samantha or Ben's party. Each twin gets to include a certain number of friends, and you're sent an evite for that twin. I didn't even realize it was a joint party till I arrived, so we brought a gift for the birthday person on our invite. I never felt like I should bring two gifts because I didn't even know. So, okay, okay, that's a good solution. I mean, that was kind of what I suggested, right? But thanks for I can't even hear you. What are you saying? <laughs> Uh, anyways, let's move on. Okay, let's move on to triumphs and fails. Uh, I'll go first this time. I have a triumph. 
Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it's a good one, I think. So I've been talking for a long time about wanting to volunteer with my kids and have not accomplished that, which is a big fail. The fail is that it took me this long to finally do it. But last week, uh, on Friday, the preschool that Wally goes to at the synagogue sent out an email about that the synagogue always does a soup kitchen the second, I think it's the second Saturday of every month. Here's a sign up if you want to, a sign up genus if you want to participate. I said, okay, we're doing this. Harry and I are doing it. It was like kids have to be six or older. So Harry's the only one who qualified. Uh, so I signed us up. Uh, and one of the things was like, if you want to be a server, you also need to bring a hot dish, which is what paralyzed me probably <laughs> earlier times when I had seen right. this email, right? So I was like, all right, that's fine. It's cool. I can just call the Italian place in town and order a tray of baked ziti. John will pick it up on his way home from work on Friday night. I'll have it on Saturday morning. We'll reheat it and bring it to the soup kitchen. But, of course, as things happen in many of our lives, it didn't go quite as planned because John got stuck at work and then yet another work emergency. And I'm, like, reading about, because my husband works in media, there's always coverage of these work emergencies. So I'm reading about <laughs> what's going on online, on Twitter, and all I'm thinking is, like, what am I going to do about that ZD? I need to get, get that ZD. All I cared about was the ZD. Like he could have been fired that night and I would only be thinking of the ZD. I cannot believe Univision did this to your ZD. So, and also I'd already told Harry we were going to do this and he was pretty excited about it. And I was just envisioning like Harry waking up the next morning, me being like, sorry, dad had to work late. So we don't have any food for the homeless people. Um, so thankfully I texted a friend Asking for help is always a good idea. Another that was that's like part of this triumph is that I wasn't too uh, shy to ask for help. I made her get out of her pajamas. She went and got me the ZD, saved the day, brought it to my house. We hung out for a little while. As she was leaving, she turned to me and said, "I think Velvel has to go out." And I said, "Uh huh, Velvel's my dog." And then she left, and I went to put the ZD in the fridge down the basement. And when I came back up, Velvel had needed to go out because he pooped all over our house. So let it be noted that you also sent me photos of the poop. Because I thought you wouldn't believe me because Dan <laughs> Dan was like texting me, are you okay? I'm reading about John's work drama. And I was like, the dog just shit all over the house. And I thought no one would believe me if I didn't actually have proof of that because it was too good. I really believed you. I believed you. Even before uh, you sent me the photo of Velvet. But anyway, despite all of these things, my life is wonderful and I'm lucky. And the next morning, uh, we woke up and we went to the soup kitchen and Harry kind of complained in the morning. He was like, wait, how many hours is this going to be? But it was really just, I mean, I don't have anything to say. I'm sure most people listening have done this before with their kids and I'm the late bloomer. But um, it was just a really terrific experience. Felt really good for me to help, <laughs> but also to watch Harry doing it and all the kids that came. And yeah, it was awesome. So we're going to do it hopefully every month. And when Sam's old enough, he'll do it too. That's really great. Congratulations. And I'm glad you guys did that. I'm also so glad that your triumph was not that you cooked something. <laughs> no. Nope. Nope. Uh, okay. I have a fail. Uh, it's not exactly a parenting fail, though it does involve my children. It is more of just a general suburban life fail. Uh, we had a yard sale on Labor Day. We are trying to uh, divest ourselves of stuff um, before we go away on our big trip next year. And also um, Alia's parents are moving out of their house that they've lived in for 30 years. And they also had a bunch of stuff to get rid of. So we had a pretty like monster mammoth yard sale. And our basement has been filling up all summer. Room after room in our basement has been filling up with stuff that we've been tagging with price tags and getting ready for this yard sale. And we borrowed tables from neighbors and uh, and we put signs up all over the neighborhood. The kids and I made signs um, that said, you know, the yard sale starts at 8 a.m. And we'd been warned that maybe people would show up a little early. So we were like prepared. We got up at six in the morning uh, on Labor Day. Ali and I started like carting stuff up from the basement. Ali started setting it up. I carried more things and more and more and more stuff. And, and uh, I was still carrying stuff up at 7, 10 a.m. when an old lady parked her minivan in front of our driveway and jumped out and ran over to us and said, are you open? And I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm very sorry. You know, we we're not open till eight. Uh, we don't even have our cash box out. So we, you know, we don't have any change or anything. And she said, respectfully, very respectfully, 
it's okay. I have exact change. And then she just started pawing through all the stuff and asking Alia questions uh, while I carried stuff up. And so then I started carrying stuff like as fast as I could and, uh, and, but everything wasn't out and Ali didn't have any change and immediately like sharks to blood, like 15 more people show up uh, and they're all like trying to negotiate Alia down on dollar items and then getting her down to 50 cents and then paying with a 20. Uh, and it's like a total disaster. And our kids like wake up inside and like yell out the window, what's going on out there? <laughs> and then <laughs> at eight in the morning, sharp, there's 30 people in our yard. I'm still carrying stuff up. Uh, our neighbor, Jen from across the street shows up with her kids who are awake and dressed and like raring to go. And while her kids help me carry stuff up while my kids are still in bed being lazy, Jen says, what's going on here? And Ollie's like, all these people showed up early. Oh my God. And Jen goes, well, did you write no early birds on your sign? And listeners, we did not write. No early birds on our sign. So let this be a lesson to you. Wait a second. If you ever have a yard sale, write no early birds on your sign. In fact, I'm going to make a blanket declaration here on this podcast for everything in my life from now until the time I die. No early birds. Didn't you have the hours of the of the thing on the signs? Yeah, but people showed so- up an hour early because they don't fucking care. That's crazy. I thought the the fail was going to be that you you like publicized it too much. I no, thought you did. I, 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 I saw all the signs. I read all about it on Facebook for like weeks. I was really proud of my signs. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it was good in that a lot of people came and bought our stuff, but it was just like a total shit show. I think people definitely walked away with stuff like Alia like was completely stressed out. And we like like it was such a crazy mess that there were like five big boxes of stuff that I just missed in the basement that never got up for the yard sale that definitely would have sold. But then after the yard sale, we just like took to goodwill because we were like, ah, fuck, we forgot about this shit. But it was a total fiasco. It was a yard sale fiasco. Listeners avoid that yard sale fiasco. Got it. No early birds. A new study this week from the University of Louisville suggests that women who report stress in their lives are up to 40% less likely to conceive. When I read that news, I immediately thought of my friend Belle Boggs and her new book about fertility and infertility, The Art of Waiting. It's the most sensitive and interesting treatment of the topic that I've ever read, and it's a topic that faces many, many parents, people who want to be parents, but also people who might never be parents. Uh, We were really excited to have Belle on the show, and she is joining us from North Carolina. Hi, Belle. Hi, Dan. So we um, have a whole bunch of questions for you because the book raises a lot of interesting ones, so I'm going to launch right into it. To start with, the book combines a lot of reporting you did on issues of fertility and adoption and economics and healthcare and a lot more, but it also combines that, uh, essays about that, with your own fertility and infertility story. Would you be willing to briefly tell our listeners your experience with a fertility treatment? So my husband and I sought medical help after we'd been trying to conceive for a little over a year. And we thought, sort of like the study that you mentioned, the year when we'd first started trying was very stressful for both of us. We were both working in D.C. And we thought, well, maybe that was it. And um, so my gynecologist prescribed Femara, which is an oral medication that's often used to treat problems with ovarian function. And that didn't work. I took that pill for, oh, I've eight or nine months before I finally saw a reproductive endocrinologist. And we tried some other treatments before moving on to IVF. Um, We tried um, intrauterine insemination because it was what we could afford, not because it was necessarily the best course of treatment for us. And our doctor was, was clear about that from the start. And I think I had two, well, possibly more than two, but at least two big areas of resistance to a more, um, to IVF, basically. And the first was very practical. It was a financial resistance. We 
simply did not have the money to afford IVF treatment like most people who would need IVF. It was not covered by our insurance, and it's very expensive. And we can talk about that if you like. But I think the other one was maybe a more subtle resistance, which is um, a bias that I had about conceiving in such Um, an unnatural or invasive to my body sort of way. And I started by writing an essay about the time that I was going through some of the unsuccessful IUI treatment while also observing springtime in North Carolina where I live um, when everything around me seemed to be so fertile, um, it was a big year for the cicadas. It was a big year for the bald eagles near my house. It was a big year for the gorillas at our zoo. And it felt very alienating to me. The kind of end of our story for us, you know, we're ve- we were very lucky in that we did finally save up the money to afford IVF and we bought a f- pretty expensive um, multi-cycle partial refund package that's um, called a cost share plan. And we conceived our daughter and she was born in 2013. You've written a lot about the mostly well-meaning but nonetheless awful things that people can say to their friends and acquaintances who are struggling with infertility, both if they know about the struggle and if they don't. A former boss of yours once told you I'm paraphrasing, but uh, drink a lot of milk. And if that doesn't work, it isn't meant to be. Right. Exactly. Crazy thing to say. And probably a more common one, which you also have written about is, is why don't you just adopt? What are the things that you actually wanted or needed to hear from friends during this time period? Oh, Allison, that's a really good question. I think the answer for me is that what I need to hear from friends and what I try to provide to friends I know who are going through the same things that I went through is, you know, I'm here to listen, or do you want to take a walk? Or, um, you know, how are you? Um, So a really open-ended and just sort of a question that lets you know that they're listening or willing to listen is probably the most helpful? Um, Or do you want to do something fun that, you know, I know that we like to do together? So, those kinds of those kinds of offers seem the most useful to me, much more useful than the advice about drinking whole milk or, you know, Dan brought up that study about stress and a lot of things will, people will try to tell you their own experience, right? Well, when we stopped thinking about it, that's when it happened. Or, you know, when we stopped <laughs> stressing about it, that's when it happened. We went on vacation and then it happened, which is, you know, that's awesome for you, but that doesn't necessarily, lots of stressed out people get pregnant all the time. And lots of people who go on vacation don't get pregnant. And so those, that kind of anecdotal evidence is not very useful. Did you find in your own experience or in reporting your book that women or men in this waiting, this long waiting time, want it to be known? Like you tell your friends, but do you find yourself wishing that like in a sort of like at work or in places where, you know, maybe you don't have the closest friends that you wouldn't confide in, you wish that everyone just kind of knew or or does it feel like private? I guess it's probably different for everyone, but I think with... For me and for some of my close friends who I met through my support group, um, which was very helpful, there are support groups through resolve.org that you can find around the country or you can start your own. And it was so helpful to me. But I think what we would talk about is how you almost wish people knew so that they wouldn't think you were strange for not wanting to go to the baby shower, the third baby shower that month at work, or, you know, you wish they knew so that they would sort of understand to give you a little bit of space. But at the same time, if you're going through something like IVF, when people know that you're going through it, there's an expectation that they will then learn the outcome. And, you know, unfortunately, the outcome is not necessarily going to be a successful outcome the first time or the second time or the third time. And it becomes trying to have to tell people or keep people informed about what's happening. So it's hard to know what to say. And most people I know will talk about it after they are through the most stressful part, either after they have 
you know, successfully adopted or had a child or else after they've resolved to live um, without children, then um, when they've made some kind of peace with whatever path they take, then that's when they can start to talk. And usually it's a little bit for the benefit of other people, at least for my friends, they'll say, you know, you know, I told people about, you know, what I went through. Maybe so they would know that, oh, this is something that one in eight couples go through. So it's going to be someone else in the office now that it's not me. Yeah, well, the book was a, a real reminder to me that uh, that the onus can also be on the other side of the friendship or the relationship. Like it's a good reminder that for when I am talking to or dealing with the child-free or childless people in my life, uh, if I'm like not close enough friends with them – that I would expect them to tell me all about what's going on with their reproductive issues. Right. I don't necessarily need to make every conversation with them about, oh, well, are you going to have kids? Why don't you have kids? What's going on with you and kids? You guys ever going to have kids? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. it's. Um, I, I try not to even ask people if they have kids. Um, and then maybe they'll just bring it up if they have kids. It's kind of a tricky subject. And I made the mistake of asking someone that if she had kids, actually, kind of recently, I was with my daughter and she was getting a haircut at one of those kids' haircut places where they, like, bribe the kids with toys and, you know, to get a haircut. And Beatrice doesn't need that. She knows that a haircut is its own reward. But um, but the— um, <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah, just, just to clarify. And so um, the— woman who was cutting her hair was so warm, so kind, so surrounded by kids stuff. And she was asking me questions like if Beatrice was, I mean, I think she could probably tell because I was taking so many photographs that Beatrice is my only child. But she asked me that. And and so then I followed up with, oh, and do you have kids? And she said, no, you know, my husband and I haven't had any luck. And it turned out that she'd been married for exactly the same amount of time that I'd been married and had gone through a lot of the same things that I went through just without the, you know, successful at this point. You know, she did not have a child and was still and was still trying. And I was really reminded, you know, as much as I think about don't ask that question there. I, you know, I went and asked that question and she was very kind and she wasn't upset with me, but it was just a reminder that you don't know somebody's story. Even if you think that you might, you don't. The part of the book that struck me the most um, was the essay in the middle uh, about paying for fertility treatment. And you've touched on this already in this conversation, um, but that is something that a lot of stories like this don't deal with, that they tend to skip right over. And so I would really love to ask you a couple of specific questions about that that I think our listeners could really benefit from. So you mentioned the cost share plan that the clinic in North Carolina that you used offered. Can you explain how that worked? For many people, it's as close as you can get to some kind of insurance. It's not insurance, um, but it's the opportunity to try more than one time. And a lot of clinics offer something like this. It's often called cost share. At our clinic, presumably they have a bunch of actuarial tables that they look at, but you're assessed for your age and your health, and you're kind of lucky to get into the cost share plan, or that's what you're told. And so we paid $20,200 for the opportunity to have three fresh cycles of IVF and three frozen embryo transfers. And we signed a lot of papers. Obviously, that's a lot of money, and it took us a long time to save that money. And obviously, that's not going to be possible for lots of people. The reason that we chose to do that, there are a couple of reasons. One is that if we knew that if we were not successful, that we would get 70% of our $20,000 refunded to us at the end of our time. And the second reason, and so we knew that we could then invest that money in whatever we might pursue next, whether it was another kind of treatment or looking into the costs of adoption or foster care. And um, so it was appealing on that level. It also gave us the ability to make a choice that a lot of people in my age group, I was 36 at the time that I entered that program, don't make or didn't make particularly at that time, which is single embryo transfer. 
you have a better chance of conceiving if you transfer more than one embryo at a time, um, especially, and so this becomes especially appealing to people who have a lower chance to begin with, so people who are over 35, for example. And so this is the way IVF is practiced in Europe and in countries where IVF is, um, is paid for by insurance. But it's not as common in the United States, though it is more common now than it was just a few years ago when we were trying. So um, the reason that we were attracted to single embryo transfer, other than the fact that we were not you know, that interested in having twins, is because it's just much safer. You know, a twin pregnancy can be very healthy for the mother and healthy for the babies, but not necessarily. It's, it's, it's riskier. And so we wanted the safest, you know, we wanted the safest experience and we wanted, you know, we wanted the safest experience in that way. We wanted the safest experience financially. But when you do that, you're betting against, you know, you're, you're saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put $20,000 forward. And that means that I think I'm probably not going to be successful the first time. The other side, the, you know, um, the company that's financing the cost share agreement, they are saying, you know, I think you're probably going to be successful. It's get, we're going to probably invest less than $20,000 in your success, in your successful conception. And in fact, if you are unsuccessful, you know, in such a way that they think you'll never be successful, they will kick you out of the program before you've even gone through your three cycles and three cycles. You can they'll give you your money. They'll give back, you your money back after you two cycles, yeah. or if you um, possibly. I mean, they're allowed to. I think even after one, they they were you know the it, it felt so fraught and so um, challenging. For us, that I was really surprised when I looked back at the paperwork and reread it, the things that I'd agreed to. I had agreed when I signed that pa- those papers, I had agreed to transfer however many embryos my doctor thought w- would be appropriate. And you know, I have a, had a great doctor, and he would not have done something that I didn't want or didn't believe in. But that's not what the paperwork said. And I think it's unfortunate. And a number, you know, I, I'm glad that I would do it again because I think it affected the way that we um, approached our treatment. But I think it's unfortunate that we have, you know, someone making money because um, someone else doesn't have health insurance for a medical condition. It's I mean, it's such an interesting thing to read about. You describe it in the book as almost like a financial derivative, basically. And it's, as you say, it's such a fraught transaction, such a difficult one. But for all that, you also say that you feel like, in a way, you don't know that you would have had your daughter without this kind of plan because it took a certain burden off your mind and allowed you the ability to do the cycle the way that felt best for you and was best for your body and your family. Yeah, I'm a I'm a fairly risk averse person. So starting if I paid oh eleven thousand dollars, which is I think or twelve thousand dollars or thirteen thousand dollars for a, a cycle of IVF and it went very badly. You know, not only was it not successful, but you know, I I didn't have a great response. I think it would have been hard for me to then try again. And what um, doctors like to tell you is that, you know, it is, you should think of it as a course of treatment, but that course of treatment is just not affordable to, um, to a lot of people. The book is called The Art of Waiting. It is out now from Gray Wolf. It is really great. I hope all our listeners check it out. And thank you so much, Belle, for joining us. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Allison. I really love talking to you both. Thanks, Belle. Let's move on to our listener call. Each week, we take a listener call and try to answer it. Got questions? Call us at 424-255-7833. We really want to hear from you. This week, we have a call from Megan in Toronto. I'm just calling basically to um, ask for advice on whether or not to end a marriage. Um, I've just gone through a year where um, I had to quit my job um, because I was being abused while I was pregnant and basically had to threaten a lawsuit um, so I could go to my doctor's appointments. 
um, I have had my first child and, um, I have also lost my father. Um, so my husband and I, um, our marriage was fairly good, but not great to begin with. Um, we had good periods and bad periods and during a good period, we decided to have a baby. And, um, ever since all this stuff happened, we have just no longer been able to talk to each other or deal with anything. Um, and I, I am having trouble figuring out if this is a rough patch or if this is just sort of, um, all of this, the fact that we can't manage all of this stuff means that we probably shouldn't be together. Um, I just wanted to know if you guys have gone through rough patches yourself in your marriage and if it was worth it to try and figure it out or if it's probably best for my family and for myself for me to try and start a new life. Uh, thank you very much. That is an intense call. Uh, all right. So there are a bunch of different things going on here. Um, did she say how old her baby is at this point? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. So you are a person who fairly recently had a baby. You uh, therefore are a person whose life is very difficult, whose life was difficult even before you had the baby and whose life has only gotten more difficult with the baby because that is what new babies do. They make your life more difficult and your sometimes good, sometimes tough marriage feels mostly exclusively tough right now. Um, The first thing I would like to say to you is that you are not alone and that Many, many people who have new babies or newish babies or toddlers or two-year-olds feel the same way. They feel like everything feels a little bit darker and more difficult than they remember it being, and they can't really understand why that is, and they wish that they could do something about it. Um, And there are a lot of different things that can be causing this, but my main advice to you is that the solution for what you're going through right now is not to immediately end your marriage. But one potential solution is to talk about these things, to talk about them with your husband and to talk about them with a therapist, either a couples therapist or a therapist on your own. Um, You could be depressed. You could be suffering from postpartum or a different kind of depression. Um, And these are the kinds of problems and the worldview that it sounds like you're experiencing right now are ones that really can be aided by talking through these issues with people in your life and with a professional. And that, that would be my number one advice in this question, rather than thinking of your situation as would it be better if I got divorced? Yeah. I mean, we can't, we ultimately, we can't answer that question, but you definitely, I agree with Dan should, should go talk to someone. I mean, there's so many reasons why a marriage often becomes tougher. Um, after you have a kid, there are just so many more things to fight about. (laughs) When you have oh, with so many kids, things, yeah. To about. I mean, your time is just so much less your own. You have so many. Um, There's so many sort of negotiations, financial and um, you know, task related negotiations. Who's who? Who's going to be responsible for what? It takes a lot of communication. I can, you know, you asked, have we ever gone through rough patches in our marriage? I don't want to speak for Dan, but I think probably every single person listening to the show, and definitely the person speaking right now, uh, has and will continue to. That's marriage. So that doesn't mean that. Everyone goes through rough patches and no one should get divorced. I mean, of course, some people are not meant to, uh, that marriage is not meant to work. But I'm comfortable saying John and I went through a pretty tough rough patch (laughs) um, about a year ago. And we decided that instead of having the same fight over and over again, we'd go talk to someone. And it was great. I mean, I can't tell you that it will be great for you, but it it really helped us. And I think the next time that we go through a rough patch, which I'm sure we will, We'll do it again because it helped. And I really think it's worth giving that a shot and not making the decision like right now, do I stay or do I go uh, without trying that first? Yeah. It also feels like the most charged moment in your life up till now is not the time to be making those kinds of like uh, life changing decisions necessarily when there are other options on the table um, that can help you work through what is going on right now. Um, So, yes, we are both in agreement. Don't necessarily divorce that bum yet. Uh, Instead, please talk to someone. Couples therapy is great. Therapy on your own is great. Also, you guys talking through some of these things would definitely be great. Um, And uh, we hope that everything goes better for you. And good luck with your baby. All right. Please call us if you have questions. We are at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. 
summer's over, the kids are back in school, and they have new teachers. You probably don't know those teachers, and if you're anything like me, you kind of want to email those teachers to ask some questions or just see how your kids are doing. And yet, maybe you don't send that email because you think you should chill out and be patient and just wait for back-to-school night, which is like three weeks away, no problem, everything's fine. Lucky for you, slash me, we've asked Matt Dix, who, in addition to being a regular-ish guest on our show, is also a novelist, storyteller, and elementary school teacher in West Hartford, Connecticut, to join us and answer some of those pressing back-to-school questions. Hey, Matt. Hey, how you doing, guys? Good. So last year you joined us for a similar segment, and you gave me the motivation I needed to call my kids' teachers by their first names, which was a really freeing experience. Uh, so it's great to have you back. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, so- Mr. Dix. <laughs> yes, Mr. Dix. How did that work out uh, for you, Allison? I think it worked out well. I mean, I never, you know, I, I asked the teachers if it was okay to call them by their first names, and they actually seemed relieved. I asked them in person, uh, and then all of our email correspondence after that, and in person, it just felt more human, uh, which That's is what great. you had said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we solicited a bunch of questions on our Facebook page and also on Twitter, and we'll get to those in a sec. But first, we have a few questions of our own. And mine is, well, my real question is, how are my kids doing in school this year? But since you can't tell me that, when is the appropriate time to email the teacher to just check in? Or this is in the words of a Facebook listener, how can we best understand what's going on at school without driving the teacher nuts? Right. Well, I mean, ideally, what I try to teach teachers is that they have to be PR machines. And um, I've always believed that if I put in a lot of effort early on in September and October by posting information to a blog or sending home a newsletter frequently, that that eases parents and it makes my year much better. If you're not getting that, though, from a parent, I suggest that you uh, there's nothing wrong with emailing or um, placing a phone call almost immediately. It's really just the tone of the email that you have to be very careful with so that when you're reaching out to the teacher... We understand that you're just looking for information, but it's not sort of a, you know, an, an attack or a question as to what we're not doing already. So my wife actually just emailed our teacher, and in the email, she used a phrase, and gosh, I wish I could remember what it was, but I said, you know, that phrase sounds like you're implying she's not doing her job. And that's not what my wife intended, but she realized, you know, those two words could really change the tone of the email. So I just I just suggest you watch the tone in, begin, in the beginning and establish a partnership rather than a, are you doing your job? You're not doing your job kind of a, kind of a thing. That is really good advice. All right. Here is my question for you. And this is more of a uh, teaching methods and strategy question. Uh, If I was a teacher, it would take me like six months to learn all the kids' names. (laughs) How long does it take a professional teacher to learn all the kids' names? I learn the names. I'm the worst teacher in our school, I think for names, but I, pretty much have the kids' names down within a day. The second what? Day, yeah, within God a day. I, I know, it's surprising. Well, you ha- you get the names in advance, right? So you can like... Well, you sit there <laughs> drilling them every night? No, you have to have the kids in front of you. Yeah, no, it has nothing to do with getting the list. Part of it is we are with them for seven full hours. That's a long time, <laughs> you know, to like yeah. not know a person's name for seven hours. It's a long time. Uh, I also yeah. have one class. So mil- middle school teachers and high school teachers... I'm sure it takes them a lot longer. A lot of times my problem is I can remember some of their names. So I'll be like, I remember your last name. I remember your first name. I know your sister's name because I had your sister, but I still can't remember your name. So like a lot of nicknames and uh, things like that start to develop on the first couple of days as I can't remember kids. I had a kid one year who I couldn't remember her name, but I knew she was number 13 in like our classroom numerical system. And she became 13 and I never called her anything but 13 for the whole year. That's funny. Harper is number 13 this year, so I hope that she can also be lucky 13 to her teacher. (laughs) All right, so we have some questions from uh, listeners. Um, uh, Here's one. This is from Facebooker C. Truman. I think of this as the uh, Colin Kaepernick question. When should skeptical parents think about introducing the idea of their kids questioning the sort of super pro-America stance on history, like erasing slavery and its many evils or uh, ignoring the government's lies and unethical experiments that seems to dominate textbooks and discussions of history uh, with kids? What's a good way to encourage skepticism of the powers that be without the child like being disruptive in the classroom? Yeah, I think that most teachers would love that skepticism and really enjoy it. I know I do when I have kids who push back on something that I'm teaching. So I wouldn't hesitate to have a kid, have your kid like learn that and sort of own it. I would just teach them as in all things 
to approach it properly. So in a respectful way, you know, you can raise your hand and say, isn't there another side to this? Or is there another way that we should be looking at this issue? I love it when those things happen. I had a kid one year who didn't, he didn't like to stand for the pledge. He refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, the Colin Kaepernick situation. And I had no problem with it because, you know, legally he can do that as long as he's not disruptive. And then we had a substitute come in one day and he didn't want to stand for the pledge and the substitute forced him to stand. And he was really upset about it. And his parents were, you know, justifiably concerned. And what happened in that class is for the rest of the year, not a single kid stood for the pledge uh, in defiance of what they watched happen to him on that one day. And as a teacher, like, I just admired the hell out of them that they would all sit for the pledge because of what they saw happen to one boy. So I think most teachers really embrace that kind of dialogue, as long as it's presented in a in a respectful way and while acknowledging that there are two sides to many issues or many sides to many issues. Okay, so Susan on our Facebook page asks, what is the most important thing teachers want parents to do to support their kids' education? And she lists a couple, come to school well-rested, well-fed, homework support, reading aloud time, or maybe something that she hasn't thought of. Well, I'm only speaking from the elementary school perspective, but if I could ask parents to do anything it would be to uh, encourage reading in the home. And that means you're going to provide a time that is quiet in your house where everyone is going to sit down and read. And that's like a commitment to finding books that kids love as well. So if that means you're at the library twice a week or you are online shopping for books or you're participating in book swaps constantly to ensure that your child has a variety of things to read, I think that, at least at the elementary school level, is the most important thing. I tell parents that if there's no time to do the homework, I completely understand that and don't worry about it, but please make sure that there's always enough time to read. You know, my, my daughter's seven and there has not been a night in her life that we haven't found the opportunity to read to her for at least 15 minutes. So I think that's the thing that I find most important. I have a follow-up uh, question, actually. Yeah, yeah to do it, do it. Well, so we also, we read aloud to the kids at night. Harry, my seven-year-old, who's the only one who can read, and reads alone in bed. And I'm, I don't know, I think I sort of, I'm a little frantic about the choices that he makes. I really want him to read Harry Potter or Percy Jackson or whatever, things that I think seem interesting and challenging. And he prefers to read in bed, like, football fact books. And it's kind of a struggle. And I've, tr- I've I, lately, I've just been kind of, getting him the things that he likes because I just want him to read in general. But wh- where do you come down on that? Like, should should I be sort of trying to encourage fiction or is it cool as long as he's reading? No, I think you're doing the right thing as long as he's reading. Uh, the way you can think about it is at school, ideally, his teachers are going to be challenging him at a level slightly above what he can currently read at. And they'll be doing that throughout the day. So if he's spending seven hours in a building where all the adults are constantly challenging him to read at slightly above his grade level. It only makes sense that when he gets home, he's ready to read, but not read something that he has to, you know, process to that great degree. So I tell parents, as long as they're reading something at home, and especially if they love reading something at home, that's the most important thing. If he enjoys reading, you have already like won the battle and just um, allow that to continue and just trust that the educators are really pushing him in the places that he needs to be pushed. Yeah, I also think it really, like the ability to fall back on comfort food type books encourages just a habit of reading. Like I have a very vivid memory of being probably about Harry's age, Allison, and subsisting basically on baseball trivia. Like I just read baseball trivia uh, over and over, like the same books over and over and over again until I had them memorized. And obviously there was like no value there, but it, like created me as a reader. Yeah. Um, okay. I have a question. I have a question from a neighbor of mine um, who is curious about the, uh, the inner lives of teachers. What is the biggest challenge for a teacher in the first month back to school? <laughs> well, I guess it's, it's different for a lot of teachers. Uh, there's a lot of meetings in the first month of school. And for me, that is the death. Um, I cannot stand meetings. I went into teaching because I want to spend my time with children. So every time that I am taken away from kids, it is, um, it is a painful experience to me. I also know that teachers, it's a tough transition. You know, we, um, we have lovely summers and we know how lucky we are. I also remind people that we don't actually get paid over the summer. So we have a, a two-month unpaid break, which we love and it's beautiful. 
sometimes it's just as hard to transition into school as it is for kids. And sometimes even harder because kids are saying goodbye to baseball and beaches and those kinds of things. We're saying goodbye to our kids often, you know, and it's like, we've just spent two months with my four-year-old and now I'm going back to work and he's going to be at home with his mother every day. And I just enjoyed him for two months and I should be grateful for what I had, but it's hard. Uh, so those transitions, especially for teachers who have little kids, that can be really difficult. But I, you know, in terms of the actual job, I would say that the enormous amount of paperwork and meetings that are required in the first month of the school year can really be a, it could be a pain. Okay, last one. This is from Rachel, a colleague uh, who asked this on Twitter. What do you really think of the crappy math curriculum? (laughs) (laughs) I don't um, think that the math curriculum is crappy. I have always, I have always said that as a teacher, and I believe that for all professionals, if we are told to do something that we find sort of objectionable on a professional or a moral level, we will find a way to make it work so that it is both conforming to the needs of our boss while also meeting our own professional and moral needs. So I don't think the math curriculum is terrible. And I think that most of the people who talk about the math curriculum being terrible aren't actual mathematicians or teachers. They are simply people who remember what math was like 20 years ago and are confounded as to why it's not the same today. But no, I don't think it's bad. I do think that there's moments when I say to myself, this lesson is kind of ridiculous. I'm going to modify it so it's not ridiculous anymore. But we do that across the curriculum, uh, to be honest. So now, you know, I say find a mathematician or find a teacher and ask them what they think about the math curriculum. If you're just finding, you know, a parent, they really are just going on what they remember from a long time ago. And pedagogy moves on and, you know, it's a, it's a much more international world now. So it was really lovely to have a, to have a math curriculum of 20 years ago when there weren't as many uh, people competing with our children. But it's a big, bad world out there that we have to prepare kids for. And this math curriculum, I believe, will get kids to where they need to be. Take that, Rachel. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I understand it's hard to have your kid come home and talk about stuff that you don't understand and they're only in third grade. Like, that's an inconvenient truth for a parent. And Oftentimes when I'm teaching things, I say, this is not the quickest way to get kids to this, to the final step. But I know many adults who can't explain why double digit multiplication works, but can do it. And I try to explain to them that knowing why it works and how it works is also very useful, particularly if you want to live in today's world where you may be programming computers or working in banking and all of those you know, high-end jobs that we want our kids to get. The how and the why is just as important as the end product. And uh, we didn't get taught end products when we were younger. We just taught, you know, here's how you get to this. But here's the final step. Who cares how we get there? So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be good for kids. We just don't understand it if we're not working with it. Okay, Matt, thanks so much. We hope you have a great school year. Um, listeners, keep sending us questions. We'll have Matt on again. Matt, I'm so glad you know all the kids' names in your class. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. It's the one thing I've done well so far. Uh, Let's move on to recommendations. Dan, what do you have? Uh, I have a recommendation for a thing specifically for moms to do with daughters. Mm. Uh, I bet that lots of people would enjoy doing it. Of all genders would enjoy enjoy doing it with all gender kids. But uh, from our family's personal experience, that's where this recommendation goes. I would I would recommend that moms watch Gilmore Girls with your daughters. Uh, Alia is watching the whole series right now with Harper and Lyra uh, from beginning to end there at the near the end of season one right now. Um, and they both girls are so totally in love with the show, even though plentiful aspects of it are completely misunderstood or not understood at all by either of them. Um, and they love that. And Alia loves like sitting them with them on the couch and getting to just be with them for 44 minutes and watching like a great mother daughter relationship on the screen. And, uh, every time I look in on them, they are just having such a nice time. I think it has really improved my children's banter. They're much better bantering now because of <laughs> Gilmore Girls. Uh, and, you know, like many viewers, including Slate's own Willa Paskin, I have my problems with Gilmore Girls as a show. Like, I often found it annoying. But 
it is hard to imagine a more perfect show for mothers and daughters to watch together uh, once the kids reach an appropriate age for it. I guess I will never know. Nope. Great, great recommendation. Uh, okay, cool. Well, I spent all Sunday watching football with my kids. That's <laughs> if you have sons, watch football with your sons. Yeah, we're being very, very gender normative here. Um, yeah. Okay, well, my recommendation is those tennis balls for kids. You know those special what? tennis balls for kids? Do you know about Shut these? Shut up. There's no such thing as special tennis I balls. I had no kids. idea they existed, but There's they're great. There's just tennis balls. No, they have these tennis balls. Are you being sarcastic or you really didn't no, know No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, someone, so we live a couple blocks from this park, and Harry and Sam, we let them go by themselves, and now all of a sudden they're really into tennis. There are some courts there, and so they've been going and playing on their own or playing with other kids, and I mean, they, you know, they can't really play tennis. They're not so great, but somebody... A neighbor said, oh, you should get these balls. And and they're these, we bought the, what are they called? The Pen QST, which are for 10 and under. But I'm sure the brand doesn't matter. I'm sure other brands um, make these. But they're like, they have a denser core. That's how they describe it. And so they just like don't bounce quite as much, as high, as hard. And they're just easier for the kids to hit. I don't know if a tennis pro would say, eh, eh, ixnay on the Essel Spay Forget it. I don't know if a tennis pro <laughs> nice, would say. Nice eh. try with the pig Latin. There. <laughs> Thank you. Just get the regular tennis balls. But my kids have an easier time playing with them. And like, we, I actually haven't, but John and my mom both hit around with them and said these balls are like magic. So special tennis uh, balls for kids. Recommend. So the, I'm looking them up now. They are called Quick Starts. That's what the QS stands for. Okay. Pen Quick Starts. But yes, other brands have their versions of them. Uh, I'm totally going to get these because maybe they will help me successfully pull off my summer pinky swear of playing oh, right. tennis with my kids, which I stopped doing because every time they hit the ball, it just would like fly over the fence or like into the fence or nowhere. And I like couldn't take it anymore. Well, that's what my mom had better. like a really frustrating experience with Harry trying to hit with him. And he was getting really mad at her that she wasn't, you know, doing a good enough job of hitting them where he could get them or at the right speed or whatever. Right. And he wasn't right. able to really hit back to her. And then, yeah, some angel handed her a ball and it changed everything. <laughs> An angel came <laughs> down from heaven and handed her a fictional tennis ball. Amazing. Great recommendation. Uh, I'm buying some of these immediately. Cool. Okay. That's our show. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Send us an email at mom and dad at slate.com to suggest guests or topics or tell us why we were wrong. Uh, and call us with questions at 424-255-7833. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. Check out Panoply's full roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks so much to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Thanks to Steve Lichtai, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and to Andy Bowers, the head of Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Bell Boggs and Matt Dix. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. 